The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we begin today with a quotation from the Russian dissident writer and scholar Andrei Sinyavsky. In the late 1960s, he declared, quote, Pushkin is the golden mean of Russian literature. Having kicked Russian literature headlong into the future, he now plays in it the role of an eternally flowering past, to which it returns in order to become younger. The moment a new talent appears, there we see Pushkin, with his prompts and crib notes, and generations to come, decades from now, will again find Pushkin standing behind them. If we take ourselves back in thought to far-off times, to the sources of our native tongue, there, too, we will find Pushkin. Further back still, earlier still, on the eve of the first chronicles and songs, an archaic smile plays on his lips. End quote. Pushkin is often compared with Shakespeare in English, Dante in Italian, Goethe in German, as those writers are to those languages and literatures, so too is Pushkin to Russian. But why has he not been well known in the English-speaking world? Ask the typical American or Brit to name a Russian author they've read, or just to name a Russian author, period, and they'll likely tell you Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or Chekhov, maybe now and then a Gogol. Press them further, Boris Pasternak, Solzhenitsyn, Turgenev, Nabokov, if he counts. Not too many would say, ah, well, of course, it's Pushkin. I can count the Pushkin I've read on one hand. The Queen of Spades turns up in anthologies. Some lines from the Bronze Horseman. I read about Pushkin more than I read him, it seems. And one of the things that I've read as I studied literature in earnest is all about the difficulties of capturing Pushkin in translation. Could that be the obstacle? We will talk to a translator of a new work called Peter the Great's African Experiments in Prose about the life, language, and legacy of Alexander Pushkin. Robert Chandler, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, still doing my secret plan. I don't know why it took me so long to come up with this. I love October. It's my favorite month, as I talk about all the time. So this year, instead of ending October, I just decided to extend it by a couple of weeks, carving a few out of November, and it has been glorious. So good. I'm thinking about maybe starting October a week early next year. September can probably spare it. If I can get up to two months of October, I can double October. That's one-sixth of the year of my favorite month. The only question is whether that will be too much. Will I get sick of October the way people get sick of of Christmas decorations or holiday music if they start too soon. Maybe we'll 
test it. In the meantime, I am living large in my extended October, November 10th to you, October 41st to me. Sorry if that erased your birthday. If you had an early November birthday, I guess I erased it. But then again, missing a birthday now and then isn't the worst thing in the world. I'd trade mine for two extra weeks of October every single year. Okay, so Alexander Pushkin. Let's start with him. He was born in 1799, the Romantic era, if you're keeping track. If you want to compare him with others in Europe, that's four years after Keats, the youngest of the six great English Romantics. Pushkin was seven years younger than Shelley and 11 years younger than Byron. In France, he was born the same year as Balzac and three years ahead of Victor Hugo. I think if I had to choose one romantic figure who was important for our comparison purposes, even though Pushkin spoke French and read French widely, I'd say it was probably Byron. Pushkin read Byron, I think probably saw in him a kindred spirit in many ways, but he saw flaws in Byron too, which can be just as influential. If you see someone roughly your age or a little bit ahead of you whom you think is perfect, it might leave little room for your own artistry and development that happened to Dr. Johnson, as we know. He thought Pope and, and Dryden had perfected the form. No room for him. It hindered his poetry, turned to criticism instead. But if you see someone who's missing something, someone who's a little ahead of you but is a little flawed, or your contemporary who's taking up all the oxygen but you think he's not quite as good as, as what you yourself might be able to accomplish, well, then there are gaps that you can step in and fill. Pushkin saw that Byron, good as he was, was no Shakespeare. This is Pushkin's quote. I feel dizzy after reading Shakespeare. I seem to be looking into the abyss. What a man this Shakespeare is. I can't come to my senses. How shallow in comparison with him is Byron. End quote. Pushkin often looked to the past for writers, for inspiration. Homer was one of his favorites. Dante was too. The vision of Dante's hell alone, he said, is the fruit of unparalleled genius. There's a book called The Song of Igor's Campaign, an epic in Old Slavic, which is kind of akin to Beowulf or The Song of Roland. Pushkin read and reread that book a thousand times. He read Sir Walter Scott and Stendhal and Goethe, Moliere and Voltaire, a pan-European education, absorbing it all. But who was he, and what did he do with that knowledge? Let's take a quick break and then return to our subject, Alexander Pushkin, the man on the verge of incepting Russian literature. After this... Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat 
has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Alexander Pushkin was born into a distinguished family. His father was descended from nobility that went back to the 12th century. His mother had roots in German and Scandinavian nobility. Most significantly for our discussion today, her maiden name was Gannibal, which she took from her grandfather, a man named Abram Petrovich Gannibal, an African page who had been kidnapped from his birthplace in Central Africa, given to the Ottoman Sultan in Constantinople, and transferred to Russia as a gift for Peter the Great. More than just a servant, Gannibal became a trusted near-family member, a godson to Peter the Great, a member of the court household, and then, after he was educated, a military engineer and an army general. Alexander Pushkin, was his great-grandson, was born in Moscow in the aftermath of this legacy, but in a family that still retained nursemaids and French tutors, leaving him to learn Russian from the household serfs and his beloved nanny. He was sent to prestigious schools, including high school in St. Petersburg, and began publishing poetry at the age of 15. He was firmly in the Enlightenment tradition, following the thinking of thinkers like Voltaire, and devoting himself to social reform and hanging around literary radicals. The government was not too pleased. Pushkin went into exile for a few years. He became a Freemason, and he got swept up in the cause of Greek independence. In his early 20s, he was already getting famous for his writing. Romantic poetry, lyric poetry, love poems, that kind of thing. He was also antagonizing the government. He was working on his most famous work, the novel in verse Eugene Onegin, and living the kind of life where his friends and family had to personally intervene with the Tsar on his behalf. That says something about his conduct and his relationship with the government, as well as the kind of circles in which he traveled. I might antagonize my government, but if I did, nobody would care, and if they did care, I wouldn't have a direct line to the White House to intervene on my behalf. Pushkin's life was different from mine. He had well-positioned allies, and he was also a highly visible target, and he couldn't stop writing things like his poem, Ode to Liberty, which he recited aloud, landing him in hot water. Pushkin met with Tsar Nicholas at one point and managed to get the exile lifted, and he began working in the Tsar's archives, 
but he was banned from traveling freely, and the Tsar was watching his writing and publishing like a hawk. He wrote his most famous play, Boris Godunov. Godunov? Did I pronounce that correctly? Godunov, when he was 26. But it was blocked from publication for five years and was not staged in uncensored form during his lifetime. Too dangerous. He was clearly talented, clearly brave, and somewhat reckless, and known for his dashing style. He married a famous young beauty named Natalia, who was also admired by many others, including the Tsar himself. And there was some kind of kerfuffle with the title that the Tsar gave Alexander upon the marriage, which apparently was lower than Pushkin thought he deserved. The marriage wouldn't last too long. His wife was flirtatious. There were rumors of her having an affair, multiple affairs, and Pushkin was an extremely jealous person. He went into debt. Things started spiraling downward for him. Finally, they came to a head. He issued a challenge to a rumored lover who backed out of the duel at first and then married Natalia's sister, hoping that by becoming Pushkin's brother-in-law, he would end the conflict. But it didn't work, in part because the rumors were that he did so only in order to save Natalia's reputation, painting him as a kind of chivalrous figure. Pushkin sent a highly insulting letter to this guy, which he knew would inevitably provoke a duel, and it did. Pushkin was 37 at this point, by the way, too old to be so rash and way too young to be giving up on life. But he wanted the duel and he got it. He did, they did fight. After some problems with his friends arose, problems of communication, he ended up arriving without a second. Seconds in those days were supposed to patch things up if they could and the need for a duel, but he had no second there. He had no such luck for Pushkin. So he and the man, his brother-in-law, fought a duel known as a barrier duel, which is pretty dramatic. The two people start a ways apart, then they walk toward one another. The idea is you can choose to fire whenever you want, but once you fire, you have to stand still and wait for your rival to shoot back at his leisure. It's kind of like a game of chicken to see who's willing to take his shot first, knowing that if he's too far away and he misses, he'll have to stand there like a sitting duck while the other one shoots at him. I'd call it chickens and ducks, except it was more serious than that. In Pushkin's case, it was deadly serious. His rival fired first, managing to land his bullet in Pushkin's stomach. Wounded, Pushkin tried to steady himself and fire back, but in his impaired state, he could only manage to graze his rival's arm. Pushkin died two days later. We are left with his literary legacy. It began in his lifetime as he befriended and mentored the great Ukrainian writer Gogol. I never wrote a line without thinking of Pushkin, Gogol said. Pushkin's verse novel, Eugene Onegin, was widely read and hugely famous, and it inspired a famous opera by Tchaikovsky a few decades later, as did Pushkin's short story, The Queen of Spades. His poem, The Bronze Horseman, is another one of his most 
famous works. He wrote a short drama called Mozart and Salieri, which inspired the work we all know and love as Amadeus. And he's famous for innovation in Russian, for bridging the gap between classical or neoclassical ideas and formal language to modern, vernacular, simple yet nuanced language. I've always had a hard time getting my mind around the greatness of Pushkin. I find myself forced to take others' word for it. And I don't know if that's because we've absorbed Pushkin and he paved the way for others to supersede him, or if it's because, as Nabokov suggested, it's difficult to the point of impossible to translate him adequately and adequately convey all of his genius. I will talk to Robert Chandler, his translator, about that and see what he says. He is the expert where I am only the amateur. Of one thing, there is no question. Pushkin is revered in Russia and has been for two centuries. It's his personality as well as his language, his subject matter as well as his style. He's viewed as ushering in modern-day themes and concerns. Without him, I'm not sure we have a Gogol, and I suppose we'd eventually get around to Chekhov, one might think Europe was flooding in from all directions, but then again, I don't know whether that's true either. Maybe without the bridge, the course of history would never find the route that it eventually found. We'll give the almost last word to Dostoevsky. At a session of the Society of Lovers of Russian Literature in 1880, Dostoevsky said, quote, There has never been a poet with a universal sympathy like Pushkin's, and it is not his sympathy alone but his amazing profundity, the reincarnation of his spirit in the spirit of foreign nations. It is a reincarnation almost perfect. End quote. In Moscow, Turgenev said, quote, The very essence, all the features of Pushkin's poetry chime with the features and essence of our people. End quote. Tolstoy didn't like Pushkin much, but let's chalk that up to Tolstoy's quirky reading habits and assessments. Tolstoy didn't like Shakespeare either. A disqualifying position, in my view. He thought Chekhov's plays were garbage. He admired Chekhov. He loved his works, his short stories. But listen to this. This is in Chekhov's words, as recalled by one of his colleagues. Quote, I recently visited Tolstoy in Gaspra. He was bedridden due to illness. Among other things, he spoke about me and my works. Finally, when I was about to say goodbye, he took my hand and said, Kiss me goodbye. While I bent over him and he was kissing me, he whispered in my ear in a still, energetic, old man's voice, You know, I hate your plays. Shakespeare was a bad writer, and I consider your plays even worse than his. End quote. Anyway, Tolstoy, he did like Pushkin's prose. Every writer should study Pushkin's stories, he said. The Queen of Spades, brilliant, he thought. He recommended Eugene Onegin as well, and it's often said that one of Pushkin's unfinished fragments gave Tolstoy his idea for starting Anna Karenina with plunging the reader straight into the action. That book begins with the famous, all happy families are alike, etc. You know the line. And then the next line is, everything was in confusion in the Oblonsky's house. 
which kind of reminds me of Joyce's story, the dead. Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. All tracing back to Pushkin, who began a story, quote, the guests are arriving at the cottage, end quote. Tolstoy was blown away by the impact of that, as so many others have been blown away by the impact of Pushkin in one sphere or another. Epic poetry, romantic poetry, criticism, journalism, drama, politics, humanity. The world owes a great debt to Russian literature. Many novelists have agreed in spirit with Faulkner's suggestion that the three greatest novels ever written were Anna Karenina, Anna Karenina, and Anna Karenina. My own favorite author is probably Chekhov. He's very close. Anyway, in my top whatever small number you want to choose. And to the extent that those writers are indebted to Pushkin, so are we. But what does it mean for those of us outside of Russia and the Russian language? How do we approach Pushkin? We look to the translators to guide us toward the promised land, to give us the goods in language we can read. We'll talk to one of those guides, Robert Chandler, after this. Okay, joining me now is Robert Chandler, who has edited, co-edited, and translated numerous books from Russian into English, including both poetry and fiction. He also runs translation workshops and teaches at an annual literary translation summer school. He's here today to talk about his new book, Peter the Great's African Experiments in Prose by Alexander Pushkin, which he has translated from the Russian along with co-translators Elizabeth Chandler and Boris Dreljuk. Robert Chandler, welcome to the History of Literature. Hello. So when I started studying literature, I can remember hearing two things early on. One was that Russian writers revere Pushkin, and the other was that Russian writers often insist that Pushkin's greatness defies translation. So I'll be interested in talking to you about the work you've done to translate his writings. But first, I wanted to talk about Pushkin and why he's so revered. Who was Alexander Pushkin? Well, he began writing in the early 1800s. He occupies much the same sort of role in Russian literature as Goethe in German or Dante in Italian. Mm. Really, is the founder of their literature. Mm. Um, he's not their first great poet. There was at least there was a great 18th century poet called Dzerzhavin. Um, but Pushkin wrote the first works in a huge number of different genres, from short stories, miniature plays, Shakespearean play, a novel, every different conceivable genre of poetry. He really did sort of lay down the pathways for everyone to follow. Mm. There is absolutely you know, very, very few Russians would question his being their greatest poet, he wrote about a huge number of different themes. A great many, you know, the seeds of a huge amount of literature to follow mm. um, are in him. I mean, Dostoevsky's novel, The Demons, you know, it's 
takes its title from a very short lyric poem by Pushkin. Figures in Tolstoy are in um, the War and Peace are sort of prefigured in Pushkin's historical fiction. Mm-hmm. The question of translating. Um, I think actually Pushkin is a rather rare example where translations have just gone on getting better and better over the yeah. years. Right. Um, very rare indeed. The first sort of half-decent you know, readable translation of his verse novel, his sort of comic verse novel, Eugene Onegin. Um, the first readable one was by someone called Charles Johnston, um, probably in about the sort of 19, late 1960s or 70s. Mm. A little bit donnish, but it's readable. And then there's a good American one by Michael Phelan, and a still better one by the late Stanley Mitchell. Um, I'm always eager to promote that because I knew him and I encouraged him in his work mm. and kind of watched, you know, the, watched it emerge over over probably about 20 years. Um, it's published by Penguin Classics. And I've read the whole thing aloud to my wife, which is a pretty tough test because if you're reading something aloud, yeah. um, you really notice every little stumble or awkwardness my wife will pick up on every ambiguity. You know, I, I was able to read it with real, real joys. I absolutely do not think that Pushkin is untranslatable. Yeah. Merely that he is very difficult to translate. What made it so difficult, and why? Why did it take so long before people started to, you know, as you say, it's pretty rare that translations get better and better. Often, as we get farther away from the source material, it gets harder to capture kind of the the tone of the era and so on. But what what is it about Pushkin's language that gave people trouble for so long? Well, people often wrongly imagine that something complicated will be difficult to translate. Mm. Um, whereas what is really difficult is language that appears to be simple, but is actually a kind of profound and perfect. Mm. And Pushkin has this kind of apparent simplicity, a kind of transparency, um, an absolute perfection of sound. But, you know, nothing for the main part, you know, nothing that really sort of sticks out. So um, people imagine it to be sort of straightforward. I'll tell you something very, I find very surprising was that um, 15 years ago, I was compiling a an anthology of Russian short stories for Penguin Classics. And there's a very a brilliant, relatively little-known writer called Leskov. He's the least known of the sort of great Russian writers in the English-speaking world. And one of his masterpieces is a story called The Steel Flea. And it's absolutely dense with wordplay, really brilliant, mm. brilliant wordplay and puns and malapropisms of all kinds. And I just took it for granted that it would be almost impossible to translate, that I might spend a year trying to translate it and failing. And I decided I wouldn't include it in this anthology. And um, I was, you know, very ready to include any good translations that have already been published. But I, you know, I looked at um, existing translations of all the obvious people, Pushkin, Lermontov, Chekhov. There wasn't anything that I really liked enough. I, I retranslated all of these stories myself. And then rather late in the day, 
and I came across this quite brilliant American translation of um, The Steel Flea um, by um, someone who died about 15 years ago, William Edgerton. He didn't do a lot of translating. He was an American academic. And I think, it, you know, sometimes because it's so obvious that it's a complete waste of time to translate a story like that unless the translator really puts all their imagination and creativity into it. Mm. A good translation does actually come to be. Whereas a lot of the time, when something appears to be relatively simple, like a lot of Chekhov stories or um, Pushkin prose, people imagine they can just sort of translate it mechanically. Mm. And they do, and the result is sort of tolerable, but it's not, it's not great. Right. So it, it sort of lulls them into a, a kind of, they're translating maybe with some speed or, or just uh, not laziness exactly, but they are taking it at face value and, and kind of skimming the surface with it. Absolutely. Not precisely laziness, but not bothering to really imagine it at a deep enough level. Mm, right. Well, that's interesting because I had always thought that it would be more like the short story you described, that the reason why it was considered untranslatable by people like Nabokov must be because it was so rich with allusions or it had so many different puns or the wordplay of it that it would make it difficult to really capture the spirit of that in English. But it sounds like that's not what Pushkin's prose is really like. Um, most of his prose and poetry, is, no, he doesn't do a lot of wordplay. Mm, right. Okay. It was said that he kicked Russian literature headlong into the future you mentioned that he was wrote some important firsts. Uh, is it just that he was borrowing uh, styles and genres from Europe and putting them into Russian for the first time? Or, or was he doing something else that his contemporaries weren't doing? Interesting question. I think he probably was doing something that his contemporaries weren't doing. I mean, he, he definitely began as a romantic Mm. But he synthesized a lot of different ways of thinking. And certainly as a historian, he was doing something very new. I mean, he was always interested in history. As history became more and more important to him throughout his life. I think he really hoped that his great work would be a, a kind of archival-based study of Peter the Great, which he never completed. But his history of the Pugachev Rebellion, that's one of the, well, the most serious peasant rebellion um, under the Romanov dynasty. Um, his history of the Pugachev rebellion is scholarly insofar as it is. He spent a lot of time in the archives. He quotes a lot of archival material. Um, it's quite innovative in his um, in its sort of polyphony. Mm -hmm. um, he really does sort of accept that everything was so complicated and there were so many sort of different little battles going on in different places and on that you know really kind of establishing an, an objective truth is um is actually beyond him so he doesn't you know he doesn't try to sort of tidy it up into a single clear narrative um he makes it on the contrary he makes it clear that neither Pugachev nor the Tsarist generals really knew all that was going on at the time and he really does sort of emphasize the randomness the chaoticness of it all 
Mm. that you know how little the kind of wills of the individuals involved really mattered you know that's certainly something that Tolstoy picked up on in War and Peace I think uh, that sort of acceptance of the random was probably fairly new mm-hmm. it almost seems like he was looking at life and humanity and Russian society and the world as just being broader than maybe some other people were if he was willing to live with the chaos and the complication and to not try to minimize that in his writing, but accept it, it seems like it would give his works more of a sweep and more of a what we would consider to be more of a modern sensibility. Yes. I mean, The Queen of Spades is one of his best and best-known short stories. And um, he does treat there, and in a few other places, he treats the theme of madness. Um, he does it with a sort of absolute simplicity and clarity. So um, it's not mm. sort of madness, I suppose, as a theme that was sort of quite dear to the romantics, but um, Pushkin treats it with a sort of classic simplicity that um, is not characteristic of other writing, other romantic writers. Um, again, he's, he, there is a comparison with Goethe here. Um, I mean, Goethe lived a much longer life. He, but nevertheless, you know, and Goethe had, I suppose, a wider range of interests and he was also interested in the natural sciences. But nevertheless, they're both very big writers who, you know, mm. treat a broad range of themes. Right. Okay. So let's start to move toward the book that you've translated most recently. So I was interested to hear that he actually had a connection with Peter the Great. And just to, I don't know if we've talked much about the context, but he was born in 1799, died quite young in 1837. And I sort of associate him with the world of war and peace. I know that's set in 1805 to 1820. I'm sort of imagining him in Moscow being kind of in that era. And I I guess he, I understood from your introduction that he spoke French, as a lot of people do in War and Peace, and he learned Russian from household serfs. But what was his connection to Peter the Great? Um, Pushkin had a somewhat negroid appearance. Um, He was very conscious of that. Everyone was quite conscious of it. Um, He was fairly defiant about this. And the reason is, and I always forget whether it was his great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather, one or the other, was an African slave who was um, bought in Istanbul, given to Peter the Great as a present. And Peter the Great, who is both a very brutal man, but also an extremely, in many ways, sensitive and intelligent man, um, recognized that this little boy, I forget just you know, maybe aged about eight or nine or ten, um, recognized that this was an extremely intelligent little boy and gave him a superb education, mm. um, sent him to Paris. I was obviously very fond of him. I mean, he really was a confidant of Peter the Great. So this, this man, whose name was Gannibal, uh, Russian for Hannibal, he spent several years in Paris. He hobnobbed with a lot of the philosophers there, knew people like Diderot trained as an engineer, came back to Russia, um, was an important military engineer, um, built military forts, some of which are still standing, like Kronstadt, and um, lived quite a long life. He was Pushkin's great or great-great-grandfather. Obviously, you know, he was a somewhat a legendary figure because he was, you know, he was a very unusual person. Yeah. 
And so Pushkin's, um, I think it's his first attempt at a sort of extended piece of prose, is called Peter the Great's African. It's sometimes been translated as Peter the Great's Arab, Peter the Great's Blackamoor, um, but we called him Peter the Great's African. And I suppose, um, I mean, Pushkin, I think he, well, I mean, he was fascinated by Peter the Great for probably a host of different reasons. But um, obviously having this ancestor who knew Peter the Great gave him a sort of feeling of being a, you know, having some kind of inside knowledge. And um, he did write a great deal about Peter the Great. You know, there's this unfinished prose novel that we've translated, which is you know, sometimes a little bit comic and satirical. Um, there's an epic poem called Poltava, which celebrates Peter the Great as a sort of epic military hero. And um, then the poem that, along with Eugene Onegin, is one of his very greatest masterpieces, the poem titled The Bronze Horseman, mm. which shows us Peter the Great, the um, founder of Petersburg, and you know celebrates both the beauty of Petersburg and its nightmarish quality, the fact that it's in such an atrocious climate and liable to terrible floods and so on and so on. Um, right. So for Peter the Great's African, was he writing this as a as a biography of his uh, great grandfather? What sources did he have, or or was he inventing a story to tell, or what did he draw upon for the book? Um, he had some. I think he had some older relatives who who had known him, mm-hmm. and there's certainly some written sources. Um, it is fiction. I mean, he's. Um, I mean, everything is historically plausible, but sometimes he gives an event that happened to one character historically. He gives it to another character in the fiction. So his concern is with historical plausibility rather than literal historical accuracy. But um, I think his greatest interest in the book was the effect of Peter the Great's reforms in Russia. So we get these reforms seen through the eyes of someone who is a sort of double outsider because he's black and because he's lived in Paris for several years. Um, We see them seen through the eyes of a rather silly young Russian nobleman who has lived quite a long time in Paris and just returned to Petersburg and is sort of totally uncomprehending and getting everything wrong. And we get the reforms seen through the eyes of the old-fashioned nobility who are you know, wholeheartedly against them. Um, I think that was Pushkin's greatest interest in the book. And mm. some of those passages, especially when the old nobility are complaining about them, are very, very funny indeed. Mm. And there are other pieces of prose that you've gathered into this book. Are these unfinished works? Are they excerpts from novels or short stories? And they're all unfinished works. Mm-hmm. Pushkin was an absolutely natural poet. You know, he could compose just a huge amount, just sort of off the cuff, you know, just sort of lying in bed, just it would just sort of come pouring out of him. Wow. Um, sort of didn't need much revision. With prose, it was the opposite. He was wanting to write more prose. He kept making false starts. He found it very difficult. He was struggling to find a satisfactory way of writing prose, hence the quite large number of unfinished pieces. So I have a quote from Pushkin here that, Uh, He said, precision and brevity are the most important qualities of prose. Prose demands thoughts and more thoughts. Without thoughts, dazzling expressions serve no purpose. And uh, the subtitle of your book is Experiments in Prose. I almost took that to mean at first that 
that he was maybe trying to to be more elaborate with his prose, but instead it sounds like he wanted it to be more direct and and more plain. Is that the experiments that you're referring to? Um, I suppose I just meant that he that he was you know trying with some difficulty to find his path to writing prose, mm. and he was sort of quick to realize when he you know particular when he'd reached a, a dead end. So then he'd try again. Oh, I see. Um, but uh, perhaps um also with the um, the very very funny story called the history of the village of Garukino. A lot of it is Pushkin making fun of himself and um, making fun of his efforts as a historian. Mm. So I suppose he was trying to find a way to write history. And one of his ways of trying to find his way was to write a story about a, a rather decent but pretty pretty stupid minor sort of village squire who sets out, in, he wants to be, he's retired, and um, he wants something to do, so he decides to be a historian and... First of all, he wants to write a world history, and then he thinks that's a bit too much. So maybe he'll write a history of Russia, and yeah, then he thinks, well, perhaps that's too much. Maybe <laughs> I'll write a history of the, the 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 province. It comes down to the village, and everything that he does is is sort of mildly ridiculous. You know, he he his sources are, are sort of things. You know, they're they're ridiculous sources. What one of his sources is some pages from some parish records that have been made into paper kites by village boys and a couple of them land in his yard and he you know discovers that he sort of dates and information on them so um in one passage it's all written in a sort of mock serious tone here i append a list of the sources that have served me during the composition of the history of Garukino. And um, one of them is some sort of, a bit like sort of accounting books or diaries by his great-grandfather. It is notable for its clarity and concision of style. For example, May the 4th, snow, Trishka thrashed for rudeness. So that's one of the serfs. <laughs> Sixth, the Dan Kao died. Sienka thrashed for drunkenness. Eighth, clear skies. Ninth, rain and snow. Trishka thrashed on account of the weather. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Pushkin is making fun of his his love of concision and clarity. Right. Well, as, you know, saying something about the treatment of the serfs and the sort of absurdness of thrashed on account of the weather. Yeah. Um, so, in Garukino, I mean, he, he does sort of tangentially allude to all the different ideas that were... I mean, how to write history was a very big issue at this time. History was a very, very important... It was kind of the leading intellectual discipline or becoming that. And, you know, he, he does allude in this story to all the sort of different ways, different theoretical approaches to it. So this is sort of, you know, this, I suppose, is the most obviously experimental in that Pushkin sort of clearing the ground for his own more serious attempts at writing history and um, the study he wanted to make of Peter the Great himself. Mm. And was there some pressure from the marketplace or the, the reading public? Was the world moving away from poetry for things like history and, and longer narratives? And were they looking for prose? Um, they were looking for prose. Pushkin was sort of losing touch with the marketplace during his last years. And he needed, you know, he was supporting himself through his writing. So it was he did need to try to find a way of, um, of really selling his books. And he, he was finding 
finding that that difficult. Mm. Would you say that reading the excerpts that you've translated for this book, Peter the Great's African, help us to understand Pushkin and his writing, or help us to understand him as a person, or entertaining reads, or what should people expect when they open the cover? Um, they're definitely entertaining reads. Mm-hmm. Um, the unfinished short novel Dubrovsky, I mean, someone described it as one of the greatest adventure novel in, in Russian. Um, they're certainly entertaining in lots of different ways. Um, they, yeah, I think they do give a, um, a pretty good picture of Pushkin himself. Um, the one we haven't mentioned called The Egyptian Knights which is a hybrid of... Um, so it is unfinished, although people have shown it to without telling them it's unfinished have always assumed it is finished. Mm-hmm. Um, it's half prose and half poetry. And um, that I see as one of Pushkin's most perfect works. And um, again, it has sort of all the, the prose passages have, um, have all the wit of Jane Austen um, and um, some very sort of moving, more romantic passages of poetry in between them. Mm. Um, so it's a very varied book. I think it gives a good picture of the different sides of Pushkin's work. Okay. Well, the book is called Peter the Great's African. The author is the great Alexander Pushkin. And the translators are Elizabeth Chandler, Boris Dreluk, and our guest today, Robert Chandler, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you very much indeed. A joy to talk to you. That will do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Robert Chandler for being here today, helping us out. We have some goodies in store for you, my friends. Anna Beer is one of my favorite people to talk to ever. She joined us from a television set. I hope I'm not revealing any secrets there. She's the kind of dynamic writer who television folks say, yes, please bring us more of this. But she marries that kind of narrative drive with deep research and keen intellect. And yet she's humble and very fun to talk to. She will be here on Monday and we'll discuss her book, Eve Bites Back. Time to start up those subscribing engines of yours. Vroom, vroom. (laughs) Like, like, like. Five stars, five stars, five stars. I feel like a hypnotist. Well, whatever works, I guess. I'm not against a little mass hypnosis when it's for a good cause. And here, it's good cause. It helps me. Which is the goodest kind of cause, or at least gooder than most. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Thank you.